Okay, good morning. This uh, morning's Parsha class, our studying of Parsha's Vayetze, is uh, generously sponsored by Linda Gordon for a refuah shlema of her beloved husband Harvey, Yechezkel ben Leah, my wonderful Linda, whose husband needs a refuah shlema. Please, God, he should have a speedy and complete recovery. Uh, before we begin our overview of the Parsha and then delving into the specific psukim, as always, just a reminder, tonight we're beginning a new series at BRS, a fantastic series called Moments That Mattered, 20th Century Moments That Mattered. We did Tanakh B'Shana, we did People of the Book, and uh, now we're doing Moments That Mattered. In the 20th century, there were numerous decisions, there were moments that have shaped a new reality for the Jewish people going forward. Tonight we're launching, or kicking off that series with the topic of the Dafyomi. When Rabbi Meir Shapiro introduced the Dafyomi, what is the history, the background, the story? How did it begin? What is it about? And where are we today? Why was that a moment that mattered? That's at 7.30 this evening. Parshas Vayetze appears in the Art Scrolls Tom Chumash on page 144, 145. And as always, the Parsha picks up where last week's left off. And that is at the end of last week, Yaakov was fleeing, he was running from his brother after this great act of deception after taking the bracha from Esav, tricking his father. We've talked about in the past what that was really all about. Yitzchak and Rivka had very different views on through whom the legacy would pass. Yitzchak said, I know Yaakov is the more righteous, but he doesn't have what it takes out in the real world. He's this meek, pale yeshiva bachar. He sits and learns all day. There's no way that he'll be able to sustain this legacy that I have from my father and to pass it forward beyond. And so as much as it is not my ideal, I feel it's no choice but to tap Esav with that responsibility. And Rivka says, you're underestimating Yaakov. And Yitzchak insists, no, I'm not. Just look at them. And Rivka says, trust me, you're underestimating Yaakov. And then Rivka orchestrates things to show Yitzchak that in fact he had underestimated Yaakov. That Yaakov had what it took. He had it within him in order to be able to operate, so to say, in the real world to the degree that he was able to manipulate his own father. Something that normally we would not view as consistent with somebody who's virtuous and righteous, but in this context was exactly what Yitzchak needed to see in order to have the confidence and faith that Yaakov was in fact the one to pass it forward. But nevertheless, Esav doesn't buy it. Esav is not comforted by it, and he wants to kill his brother. So Rivka tells Yaakov, you need to go, and you need to go now. I always point out, I didn't mention it last week, but if you look back, we always have this image that Yaakov takes the bracha, Esav is furious, Rivka says, get out of here, he doesn't even pack a bag, and he runs. And that's the impression we have, but if you look at last week's parsha, you see that Yaakov actually goes back to have another conversation with Yitzchak. And what's interesting is not what's in the text, but what's missing from it. Yitzchak doesn't say to Yaakov, hey, what was that all about? What's going on? Don't you want to say something to me? Don't we have to clear some air? He doesn't even raise it. He just says, don't marry such and such. Okay, go. So that's very unclear. The text doesn't include it. We can speculate, and our rabbis do, but that's all last week's parsha. So this week, Yaakov, in fact, he's the message. He's on the run. He's heading towards Haran. We know that there was an interlude that took place here. How long was it? 14 years. What was Yaakov doing? He was he's a young yeshiva bachar. Of course he's learning Torah. Where is Yaakov learning Torah at that time? 
not a lot of options of yeshivas and Batei Medrash to hang out in. He is learning in, right? There wasn't a kolal movement around Be'er and Haran, Padan Aram, Kenan. That's one of the topics in the Moments That Mattered series is the kolal movement in America that began in the 20th century, a moment that mattered. So it didn't exist then. So where is Yaakov learning? Yeshiva of Sheva Eber. Yaakov Kamenetsky points out that it's not a coincidence he's learning in the yeshiva of Shein Ve'ever, because true, he emerged from the base medrash of his father, of Yitzchak. Could one ask for a greater Rebbe, a better base medrash than Yitzchak? And yet, he feels he needs to go learn for 14 years. Is that just like Shana Bet, Shana Gimel, Shana Yudalad? He needed 14 years he negotiated? No. Says Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, he was exposed to a learning in the yeshiva Shein Ve'ever that he didn't get at Yitzchak. In the base medrash of Yitzchak, in the base medrash of the Korban Ola, of the great Yitzchak, the perfect Yitzchak, the Yitzchak who was immersed in Torah, he was able to learn a life of being an Ishtam Yoshev Olam, a wholesome life entirely immersed in Torah. But in the base medrash of Shem Ve'ever, he learned the Torah of how to live in the world, of how to operate with all kinds of personalities and figures and cultures and all kinds of influences which are not entirely consistent with our Torah. So those 14 years were preparing him for the house of Lavan. How to live and how to endure and how to sustain the values of the base Medrash in Yitzchak in a home of Lavan. How to do it, he didn't get in the base Medrash of Yitzchak. That he got in the yeshiva of Shein Ve'ever. I don't remember if I mentioned this in previous years when we studied this, but my own personal hang-up is I think that yeshivas in Israel in particular should be training young men as a graduate of such yeshivas myself where the emphasis should be, we're training the Balabatim of tomorrow. It's not that you have this life in the ivory tower called the yeshiva, and then you get back and now you have to go to college, you go to graduate school, you get married, you have children, and you have no idea how to integrate your ideal world with your new reality. You knew how to be a yeshiva bacher, where 24-7 you were in the base medrash with your and insulated and isolated and protected, and now you know how to live in the real world, but how do you merge the two? So I think whether it's the girls' seminaries who should be training and teaching what does it mean to be a responsible balabast of tomorrow, and the boys, what does it mean to be a, 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 a balabais, what does it mean to live in the world, and I mean even tomorrow's rabbis and machanchen from that perspective. But how do you find time to learn when you also have responsibilities to a spouse and children? And how do you maintain that growth pattern even when you've gone into the world? That's what Yaakov was getting in the yeshiva Shem Ve'ever, and that's what's happening in this dream that he has at the beginning of the parsha. Vayivgaba makom vayalan sham, that he encounters a place and he lies there, and he, of course, we all know the story. He places the stones around his head, and he has this dream of this ladder, and it is on the ground. It extends heavenward, and the angels are descending and ascending, which is out of order. And he awakens and he says. I had no idea. I'm paraphrasing. What's the correct pasuk? Wow! I had no idea. God is here, and I didn't know. Where was this dream? Where was it? It was Harab Moriah. It was the Temple Mount. It was the base of Mikdash once would stand. Others say it was Beit El. At the entrance of Beit El, you see a sign. There's an enormous sign at the entrance of Beit El that says, this is where Yaakov had his dream of the ladder. Some say it was in Beit El, the ladder extended to Haram Moria. The Mepharshim here will debate exactly where the dream was, what the dream was. But what is the essence of the ladder? 
is that Yaakov says, you know, I thought there was a heaven. There was a world of spirituality and ruchnius and Torah. And I knew there was a world of, of, of earth, of Gashmis, the physical world. I didn't realize that you can bridge the two. I didn't realize that you can engage the physical world and transform it. Last week we talked about the Tanya, the Sefer Abenonim, that we don't seek to extinguish or to purge the nefesh behemoth, the animal instinct in us, but rather our task is to conquer it, is to channel it, is to direct it, is to elevate it. We embrace the physical, but we transform it and we elevate it. Yaakov, the Ishtam Yoshev Olam, thought that the ideal is to be entirely immersed in Ruchnius, to transcend the Gashnius, to be an ascetic who lives above and apart. And he learns as he's encountering the world, no, we have to take the values and principles of the base Medrash and bring them into the world, into the workplace and into the gym and into the supermarket and onto the street and with all whom we interact. And that's the idea, says the Slanam Rebbe, of this ladder. The ladder is the bridge. And he awakens and he says, Yesh Hashem makom azeh. I only thought Hashem was in Shul. I thought Hashem was in the base Medrash. Hashem is at work. He's in the stock exchange, in the courtroom, in the operating room. Hashem is in Publix. Hashem is at the gym. I didn't realize. That ladder is the bridge between the worlds that allows it to merge. And Vanochi lo yadati, I didn't realize. And now he describes, this is the base Elohim. So the simple understanding, it's Ha'am the base Elohim is the base Hamikdash That will stand, this is the house of Hashem. But our rabbis note that Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov each describe Ha'am differently. Avram describes it as Ahar. He goes to the Akedah, it's a mountain. Yitzchak describes it as a sudden, a field. Yaakov describes it as a bias. And which description, we've talked about this in the past, but which description is the one we embrace the most accurate? The bias. Because godliness is not only found in the shul, the holiest place in the Jewish community is not the mikvah, it's not the shul. The holiest place, not the base medrash. Holiest place is the Jewish home. It's in the bias. Ein zekim, base elokim. Wow. It's not that when I'm home I have to deal with the mundane, changing the diapers. Last night we had a shear on Hilchah Shabbos and raising children, caring for children while caring for Shabbos, caring for grandchildren while caring for Shabbos, whatever, caring for great-grandchildren, whatever you're up to in life. I should be zochet to be up to in life. But it's not that home is where I change diapers and I have to do homework and where I watch TV and where I read my newspaper and where I pay my bills. Oh, when I look for religious growth, then I go to the shul of the, of the base medrash. No, ein zekim base elokim, not the har and not the sada, the bias, but rather that is the holiest place in the Jewish community. Yaakov awakens, and of course he makes a matzeva, he concretizes, he memorializes, which is also a very important lesson that when we have a growth spurt, when we have a huge leap of recognition, an epiphany, a realization, some major transformation, you have to concretize it, you have to memorialize it, you have to take something upon yourself. You have to do something that will cause you to remember it. It can't be fleeting. It can't be something which disappears and dissipates as quickly as it happened. He memorializes it. And he wakes up and he makes this deal with Hashem. But let's just go back for a moment. What does he say? Vayifka, the very words of the parsha. Vayifka, he encounters Bamakom. Vayifka, Bamakom. Which, by the way, he introduces us to the tefillah of Marv. Avram was Shachras, Yitzchak was Mincha. And Yaakov is Marv. Each one of the Avos, the tefillah, the prayer they introduce us to, they institute 
corresponds very much with their life. Avram is shachris, new beginnings, optimism, hope. The sun is rising, the dawn of a new day. Yitzchak is mincha, the middle of the day, passing the baton. We spoke about last week, excuse me. And what's Yaakov Marav? Yaakov's life is characterized by emunascha balelos, having to tap into faith even in the darkness of night. Vayifka makom, he encounters the place. But we know that word makom means more than just the place. What is makom? It's one of the names of, of Hashem. He didn't just encounter a place, but by realizing that Hashem is in every place, he encountered Hashem. So the simple understanding of Vayifka makom, he came to a place. But really Vayifka, Vayifka means like to bump into. Vayifka means to encounter. Oh, I didn't plan on meeting you here. Huh, Habashar, I ran into you. Vayifka, he encountered, he ran into the place. It means not only the geographic place, but the makom, the name of Hashem, which is also consistent with the whole dream of the sulam, the merging of heaven and earth, which is also consistent with the whole idea of having learned in Yeshiva Shem the Aver in order to prepare him for these years in Lavan's home. And the Rabbi Salavetcher Chumashi points out, the paradigmatic figure who found God despite his transcendence is the prophet Yechezkel. Yechezkel's prophetic revelation took place not in the temple, nor even in the land of Israel, but rather in a concentration camp in the midst of the bitter Babylonian exile. As the Pasuk, the very first Pasuk of all of Yechezkel says, among the captives on the river Kibar. Yet despite the fact that it was a time of acute Hester upon him, the heavens opened up and Yechezkel saw visions of God. When Yechezkel declared, Baruch Kvod Hashem, how does it end? You all say it every day? Kedusha? Baruch Kvod Hashem, Mim Komo, from his place. He was referring to the huge distance between God and his people. Yaakov similarly encountered God in a time of travail, penniless, fleeing his brother on the road towards exile, Yaakov also perceived God as Makom. As we've shared before, Makom is the name for Hashem when we feel distance from Him. Rafersh writes, Avram is Vayaras the Makom Meirachok with Yakeda. He sees the place from, he sees God, but Meirachok from a distance. Hamakom Yenachim Eschem. Someone is sitting Shiva, we say Hamakom, the God who you don't feel so close to right now whose presence you don't feel so intensely in this house of grieving and mourning right now. So that Hamakom, Baruch Hamakom Baruch Hu, in the Haggadah, when we talk about one of the sons who's a Russia, Baruch Hamakom Baruch Hu. Makom is the name of God, so Yechezka Baruch Kvod Hashem Mim Komo. I can even see the glory of God Mim Komo when we have this enormous chasm, when there's this enormous distance. Back to the Rav. Chazal interpret the word Makom in the context of prayer, both in regard to Yaakov and Avram. Chazal indicate that Avram instituted Shachris based on the Pasuk, the Makom, the place where he had stood. Based on this verse, in which the word Makom also appears, they suggest that Yaakov instituted Marav. The word Makom is the connotation of an appointment, a date, a rendezvous in a certain place at a certain time. Prayer is a rendezvous with Hashem, which ideally takes place in a specific time and a specific place every day. The idea of a... Makom kavua. So, vayifka makom, vayashkem ela makom, the idea that part of what reinforces and promotes kavana, concentration and davening, is having a makom kavua. It's not a coincidence that we see the use of that, of that term or that expression, makom. He wakes up and he says, manora pamakom azeh. Wow, this place is nora. What is the word nora? 
It's awesome. Not like a teenage kid, it's awesome, dude. But it's awesome as in it's worthy of awe. Says the Rav, at night when Yaakov went to sleep, he saw no special significance to these stones and earth. So he slept on them. When he awoke the next morning, it was an entirely different place. These were the same cold stones of the previous night, but now his soul sensed their holiness. What is the nature of the singularity of Eretz Yisrael? In truth, there are other places in the world that match or may even surpass its beauty. What makes the stones of the Kotel different from limestone anywhere else? Other countries have the same cold stones. The answer is that Eretz Yisrael has a quality of Kedusha that attracts Bnei Yisrael to it. The stones of the Kotel possess this Kedusha. The Jew must be able to feel Kedusha to recognize its greatness. The Manuraha Makom Hazeh. You could go to the Kotel, be a cynic, be sarcastic, be indifferent, and you feel nothing. It's cold stones, it's nothing. Or Vayifka Makom, you can encounter a place and realize Manuraha Makom Hazeh. Wow, my antenna's up. I'm open to feeling, to perceiving, to being moved. Manoraha makom hazeh. Is it an A.B. Rottenberg song that says something about the, when you touch the stones, they touch you? These are the only stones that when you touch them, they touch you? So that's the kota, manoraha makom hazeh. For them to touch us, we have to, be, we have to be open to it. So Yaakov is on the road. He makes a deal with Hashem now. He wakes up. Vayidur Yaakov neder lemor. Okay, here's the deal, God. I've got a tough road ahead. I'm running from my brother. He wants to kill me. I'm penniless. Why is he penniless? It's not in the text. The Medrash fills in. Esau dispatched his son, Eliphaz. He said, go catch up with your uncle and I want you to kill him. I'm too tired. I'm too busy hunting and running after women. You go catch your uncle and kill him. You won't believe what he did to me. Eliphaz reaches his uncle Yaakov. But who can't love Uncle Yaakov? Yaakov is so sweet and kind and great. He doesn't want to kill his uncle. So what does Yaakov do? Amazing. Yaakov doesn't say, turn around, don't kill me. What's the matter with you? He says, oh, I recognize your dilemma. On the one hand, don't murder me. Yaakov has a certain self-interest in coming to that conclusion. Don't murder me. On the other hand, Yaakov recognizes that Eliphaz has an obligation of kibbutz His father sent him. So what does he say? You know, Yaakov says, our rabbis, in several centuries, millennia from now, are going to conclude that an ani is chashiv kames, that a poor person is as if they're dead even while they're alive. Take all my money, rob me of everything I have, and you'll be able to tell your father you killed me because you left me impoverished, you left me poor. That's the equivalent of being dead. So therefore, you won't actually murder me, I'll be alive, but you'll take everything I have. Yaakov is destitute, he's poor, he has nothing. He's alienated, he's run from his family, he's poor and he's penniless, and he turns to Hashem and he says, Let's make a deal. He says, let's make a deal. And what's the deal that he wants to make? If you'll be with me, and you'll give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, and you return me, then you'll be my God. If I had God and I look at him, I say, what a chutzpah. Are you out of your mind? You're cutting a deal with me? If I do everything the way you want, then I'm your God? Isn't that the opposite of everything we've been learning on Wednesday mornings in the Amunashir? And Munan Bitachon is, God, you're my God. Whatever happens, it's for a reason. But if it works for you, I wouldn't mind having some clothing to wear and a roof over my head and coming home in peace to my family. What's really going on here with this neder? And why is God honoring it? So if you go to Hawaii Torah, we spoke about this a couple years ago and we went through this question in depth. Yaakov goes and he comes to the well, the women of the well. 
We also talked about that a previous year. You could listen. Why do we have our matriarchs, meaning our patriarchs, always at a well, at a be'er, the women of the well? What is the significance of the well, that this is the place of shiduchim, of matchmaking? Maybe that's the answer to the so-called crisis. We need more wells. We've got to dig some, some wells and hang out social events at the wells. So Yaakov gets to the well. Mayim is Torah, drawing from Torah. Absolutely. Numerous significances. Yaakov gets to the well and he encounters all these shepherds and they're standing around and they're not caring for their flock and they're ready to turn around. There's a huge stone covering the well. The Ne'asu Shama on the top of page 148. They take the stone off and they give their animals to drink. They shivu and they put it back. He says, hey brothers, where are you from? And they say, we're from Haran. So he says to them, Ayidatim is Lavan, do you know Lavan? And they said, Sure, of course, who doesn't know Lavan? Of course we know Lavan. Is Lavan ben of course we know him. Hashalom lo. So, no. Vayomra lo shalom, vine Rachel bito. And look, that's his daughter coming. Vayomra hein odio ayom gadol lo esa asefa mikneh hashku atzon lechu ru'u. So he then gives them some muscles. He says, What are you doing? Day's not over. What are you packing it in? What are you punching out? Your clock. You've got responsibility. He says that it's Siv. Yaakov Kamenetsky, others, where does Yaakov have the goal to give Musa to a group of strangers? How is Yaakov giving this feedback, telling them, how are you ending your day? Don't you owe it to your employers? What's going on over here? So the Nitziv points out one word. What a beautiful insight for all of us. One word. What does Yaakov say to them? Achai. First he establishes, you're my brother. He doesn't say you're an outsider. He doesn't say we're different. He doesn't come holier than thou, judgmental. He says, Achai, hey brother. I love you, brother. You're my brother. What's going on, brother? Listen, brother, I don't think it's right to cut out on your on your boss. So the reason that he had license to be able to give feedback is first you have to establish. This is true in all of our interpersonal interactions. You have to establish Achai. You have to establish brother before you can give that certainly unsolicited sense of of feedback. Of course, he learns that Rachel's there. Yaakov has this superhuman strength. He removes the the covering. He sees Rachel. He falls in love. Kisses her. He raises his voice. They cry. All kinds of allusions going on over here. He says, uh, you know, you're my cousin. Let's go back home. I want to marry you. And we all know the story. Lavin says, sure, it's a good plan. I like it. Worked for me for seven years. Pulls the old switcheroo. Leah substitutes for Rachel. Rachel gives the simanim, the signs. Rachel's really characterized by selflessness, self-sacrifice, putting the interests of others ahead of herself. And then Yaakov says, okay, now knew my Rachel, who I love. Nah, he worked for me for more years. Leah's popping out children. Rachel's suffering. She follows the uh, model that she had seen before of allowing Yaakov to have a co-wife in order to be able to view as having her own children through that wife. We have this interruption of all of the birth of children with the story of the Dudaim, which is what we're going to come back and study directly in depth momentarily. Leah has three more children. Rachel finally gives birth. She's uh, blessed to have Yosef. Yaakov says, it's time. I want to leave. Lavan says, you can't. You got a contract. Lavan deceives Yaakov yet again. Yaakov's had enough. He says, we're out of here. They run. Love them chases. They have a confrontation. They make a treaty. That's the end of the, the Parsha. 
a few more comments in the in the general overview, and then I want to get into our psukim. So Yaakov is characterized. It's very interesting. This also relates to the criticism that he gives the shepherds. What's the criticism he gives the shepherds? It's dishonest. What are you doing? You're paid to work the whole day. The day's not over. Hey, brothers, achai, you can't do that. This very much speaks and reveals Yaakov's essence, who he is. And, and Chazal, in fact, see that as the reason that Lavan merits something that he otherwise should have absolutely never merited. What was that? The end of our parsha. God visits Lavan in a dream in the middle of the night. He says, listen, buddy, be careful, hands off. My Yaakov, he's untouchable. And the Medrash wonders, why does Yaakov deserve such divine protection that God intervenes, intercedes to come to love him? And why does Yaakov deserve such extraordinary protection that Hashem violates his own rules to go appear and dream to a Russia, to love an Arami? What component of Yaakov's personality Merited this extraordinary protection and security. So if I would ask you, what would you have said? What is it about Yaakov that deserves this extraordinary protection? Yaakov. Hashem is going to love on this Russia, going against everything he believes to appear to a Russia in order to protect Yaakov. Why does Yaakov deserve that? So I might have said he's the Ishtam Yosheva Olam. He's the diligent Yeshiva Bach who sits and studies Torah day and night. Or maybe I would have said it's the fact that Yaakov says in love on Garti, Mitzvah Shamarti. I was living in this most corrupt culture, but I persevered. I never abandoned a path of Torah and Mitzvahs. Or maybe it's this Chosavos. The Pesach says that Yaakov had great merit from, ya- from Yitzhak and from Avram. Or maybe it's the chesed that Yaakov embodied and that he displayed. Or maybe Vayivka Bamakom. Yaakov has this incredible kawach this ability to daven. Which one of these was it? His diligence in Torah study? His chesed? Was it his schosavos, the merit of his parents? What is it? So the Medrash Tanchuma says something amazing. Says the Medrash, Mikan anu lemeidem sheschus malacha we see from the narrative that Malacha, an honest day's work, working with honesty and with integrity, professionally and diligently, brings a reward and a protection even greater than the merit of being the offspring of Avram and Sarah and Yitzchak and Rivka. Zchus Malacha. Yaakov didn't cut corners, he didn't steal pencils. He didn't take a nap on the job. He didn't report his hours or bill hours that were inaccurate. But rather, Yaakov is admired most, not for all the reasons we just listed, but Yaakov is admired most for being honest. He's an honest businessman. He's a straight shooter. In fact, our different great leaders had different names. Avram is Avinu, Moshe is Rabbeinu, and David is Hamelach. And we usually think that it's Yosef, who's called Yosef HaTzadik. But we find one place in which Yaakov is the one called Yaakov HaTzadik. 
Anyone know which great rabbinic leader or figure called Yaakov, Yaakov HaTzadik? It was the Rambam. In Hilfos Chirus, in the laws of working, the Rambam writes in Perkit Gimel, Halacha Zayin, he writes, just as an employer is forbidden to steal the wages of his employee or delay payment, so too is an employee forbidden to pilfer from the labor he is to provide his employer by wasting time a bit here and a bit there. So too must he work with all of his might. For the Tzadik Yaakov, it says, I have served your father with all my might. So the Rambam says, you know why Yaakov is a Tzadik? Yaakov's not a Tzadik for davening with Kavana or learning Bahasmada or doing Chesed. You know why Yaakov's a Tzadik? Because he was an honest businessman. Because he was honest in business. We sometimes think that we'll never ever measure up to Avram. We're not thrown into the Kivshem Eish, thrown into the fiery furnace or challenged with an Akedah. We can't measure up to Yitzchak who was almost slaughtered. But you know, we can measure up to Yaakov. Yaakov the Tzadik who was honest in business. That is his most, most praiseworthy quality is how honest he was. That's his legacy. So it makes sense that when he sees these shepherds and they're ready to abandon their post and the day's not over, he says, Achai, he can't contain himself. He can't hold back from giving that feedback because he says, what are you doing? That's not honest. You were hired to work the whole day. You have to get back to work. Okay, let's get to the section I want to look at. Perak, uh, Perak Lamed. Perak Lamed, chapter 30, verse 1. This is where we last left off on the last Parshashir. I went online to check. And we're picking it up from there. So we read these first Sipsukim when we last left off. But I want to reread them to give us a sense of context. And then we're going to read what is one of the strangest passages in the whole Torah. But I want to share with you an insight of Rav David, Rav David Foreman, who was just here a couple Shabbos ago and spoke. The Aleph Beta, if you've listened or learned online. He has an incredible, incredible insight which transforms our understanding of the whole section. Okay. Rachel sees that she's not given birth. It's not going anywhere. She's been to fertility doctors. She's tried all of the advice that everyone's given her. She's in support groups on Facebook. And she's not getting pregnant. She's not having any children. She's jealous and envious of her sister who's popping out babies like no tomorrow. And she says to Yaakov, Give me children. No. You're such a tzaddik, get this done. You have such a connection upstairs, make it happen. Because if you don't, ayin mesa anochi. Because if you can't get it done, I'm a dead woman. This is where our rabbis learn that one of the four people dead even while they're alive is somebody who's barren, someone desperate for children. The loneliness, the hopelessness is, is such an incredible amount of pain. We should all be much more sensitive to and daven on behalf of those people. What does it mean when she says, Mesa Anochi, I'm going to die? So that's where we left off last time. And if you listen at the end of the last Parsha Shir, we saw a number of different interpretations. Either she says, I'm going to die. Not that I'm going to kill myself, but I will be in such misery, I will die. I'm going to die from this heartache. Or the other is, I'm as if I'm dead. I have no reason to live if I don't have children. Numerous different interpretations. And our rabbis are critical of her. Why was she looking to Yaakov? Where should she have been looking? To Hashem. And that's kind of how Yaakov answers. Does Yaakov say, I know, sweetie, I'm in such pain with you. And true, I have children through Leah, but it's not the same as through you. Come here, let me hold you, let me talk to you, let me comfort you, let me support you. 
Vayichar, he gets angry. Vayomer, he says, Hatachas elokim anochi, ashemona mimech pribatan. Are you kidding me? You're blaming me? What, am I God? Am I the one who determines whether you can have children? And again, last time we studied, what was the nature of Yaakov's frustration? Is he disappointed that she's blaming him, not God? Is he disappointed she's blaming him? There's, there was a Kliyakar we ended last with. Kliyakar sees this as jealousy. Why did the text tell us, Rachel should want to have children because she longs for children, having nothing to do with her sister. Why is it that she wants children because she's jealous? And the Kliyakar says that's what Yaakov is responding to. His criticism is, don't live with jealousy and envy. It's not a very attractive quality. So that's where we left off. Now we pick it up. So Rachel says to herself, you know what? Look at that. Look who's coming. My maidservant, Bilha. You know what? Let Yaakov be with her. She'll have a child. I'll consider it my own. Rashi. What do you mean, I too? What's the gam? Gam anochi. Should see, it should say, anochi mimena. Rashi is picking up on the support for this word. Why does it say gam? Says Rashi, Amra lo, she says to him, Avram, your grandfather Avram. Avram had children from Hagar. So, Rachel's following, she says, You're, you, Yaakov, your grandfather Avram had children. And yet, Sarah was unable. How did she solve it? By, by being willing to share is the merit that earned her to have children. I'll do the same. And that will be the merit that earns me children as well. Just like that work for Sarah. My graciousness, my being generous to share you, will earn my having children directly. Yaakov takes her up on the deal. And in fact, Bila conceives and Yaakov has a child. Says the Ramban, so it tells us that Yaakov was okay with this arrangement. And that this child is associated with Yaakov. God has judged me, but he's heard my voice. He gave me a son. Because he judged me, but he gave me this child. Therefore, I'm calling him Dun. They go out again. Bila has another child. And... Now, Rachel says, schemes I maneuvered to be equal with my sister, and it worked. I took on Bilha to be able to have children, so that I can have children just like my sister. It worked. So therefore she called him to concretize these schemes, this manipulation that worked. That's what the word, the simple translation. Rashi, however, tells us, 
Naftalti, Niskablat Filasi, my prayer has been answered. So Rashi says that Naftulei Elokim Niftalti Niftalti means my tefillah has been answered. I am now able to have children through my maidservant, and she therefore names him Naftali. But here, now Leah saw that she stopped giving birth. Now Leah is the one running into what we call secondary infertility, which is also a form of infertility. And it's also incredibly painful. Someone has one child, or even more, and is desperate for more children, and it's just not happening. It's just not coming. They're waiting, they're anticipating, they're calculating, and it's just not happening. The disappointment, the devastation. So Leah says, So she's desperate for more children, she's suffering secondary infertility. So what does she do? She says, you know, two could play at that game. If Rachel could take Bila, I'll take Zilpa. And I'll get more children through Zilpa. There's a competitiveness going on here between Rachel and Leah. But Tomer Leah, Ba God, Vatikurashmo God. And Leah says to herself, Good luck has come. So she names him God. Luck. Look at Rashi, Ba God, Ba Mazal Tov. Good fortune has come. God Gedi. That's that word comes from good fortune. Good fortune has arrived. Good fortune has arrived. Good. Says the Ramban, what does this mean that Leah says, I realize I'm not having children? Says the Ramban, What was driving Leah? I don't get it, says the Ramban. She had plenty of children. She wasn't barren. She wasn't childless. So why did she need to employ this tactic, which is the farthest from ideal? To provide a maidservant to your husband. What woman is eager to share her husband with other women? Certainly with intimacy. Says the Ramban, critical to understanding what's happening here is to know that these were no ordinary women. These were prophetesses. And they knew that Yaakov was going to father 12 tribes. So the, compet- the competitiveness that's going on here is each wants to mother the majority of those tribes. Each wants to be the matriarch of the majority of those sons. Yaakov is going along with it because he too wanted as many children as possible. So whatever mechanism he could have the most children, he was going along. It says the Ramban, that's critical to understanding what's going on here. This new maidservant Zilpah, Vatelet Zilpah, sorry, look at Rashi. Rashi has an observation about this Zilpah, Pasuk Yud. With all of them, it says they got pregnant. Vatar, Vatelid, Vatar, Vatelid, Vatar, Vatelid. Got pregnant, gave birth, got pregnant, gave birth, got pregnant, gave birth. When it comes to Zilpa, what does it say? Vatelid, Zilpa. What happened to getting pregnant? The she was the youngest 
Rachalaya Bilazopa, of the four, she was the youngest, and therefore, when she was pregnant, you couldn't even tell. It wasn't obvious. Ukadeler mostly Yaakov Nasleben Lavan Lalaya, Shlayavan Shemachnisamoslaya, Shekach Minaglitan Shifcha Gidola Gidola Vakitana Lakitana. And that's why Leah got Zilpa. So an observation Rashi has about why it doesn't say Vatar, it goes right to Vatelin. Okay. Zilpa has another baby. Vatelin Zilpa Shifchas Leah Ben Shenil Yaakov Tamalaya Be Ashrik Yeshuni Banos Vatakrashmo Asher. Zilpa now has another son and she says, Oh, such good luck, such good fortune. Women have seen this as very fortunate. Asher, like Ashrei, is fortunate, blessed. I'm so blessed and fortunate, she names him Asher. Okay, we're in the middle of the story of the birth of the 12 tribes. We haven't covered all of them. Certainly we haven't gotten to Rachel having a child. We're not even done with Leah. And yet now we're interrupted by this very strange story. What's it doing here? What's it all about? What's going on? There's one pasuk you have most of this incredibly strange story. Reuven goes out. How old is Reuven? Chazal tell us Reuven is how old here? Six years old. He's a kid. He's a boy. He's six years old. And he goes out. And it's the time of the wheat harvest. And he finds Dudaim in the field and he brings them back to his mother. And he's bringing his mother these Dudaim. And Rachel sees this bouquet of Dudaim in Leah's hand and she says, Please, can I have some of the Dudaim of your son? But Tomerla, and how does Leah react? Are you kidding? says Leah. It's not enough that you took my husband. It's not enough you took my husband. Now you're taking my dudaim. Now if you're Rachel, how do you react? If you're Rachel, Rachel, how do you react? Leah says, it's not enough you took my husband. Now you want some of my dudaim, this bouquet of flowers my son gave me. If you're Rachel, what do you say back to your sister? Are you kidding me? Could you have more chutzpah? I took your husband? How quickly you have forgotten, my dear Leah, that I shared the simanim, I gave you the signs that enabled you to be saved humiliation. Are you kidding me? I took your husband? You took my husband. You should be giving me all the dudaim. Is that what Rachel says? No. What does she say? Batoma Rachel, lachen yishkavi machalayla, tachas you know what? You're right. I feel bad, Leah. So I'll tell you what. Tonight's my night with Yaakov. You could take an extra night. They each had a separate tent, their own bedroom. Yaakov alternated between the bedrooms. And it was Rachel's night. And she says, you know what, Leah? Take my night. You're right. I feel bad. Yaakov comes home. Leah greets him. Come to me. I, I rented you. I, I paid a price. I gave some dudaim to Rachel, my sister, and therefore you're coming back with me tonight. Yaakov says, okay. 
That night they're intimate. Say Kabbalah Zohar. You know what that night was? That was Shavuos night. God heard Leah. What was Leah suffering from? Secondary infertility. Somehow her capacity to conceive returns. And now she gets pregnant again. And what does she name this young man? Yisachar. She has a sixth son. She names him Zvulun. And then finally now Rachel is able to get pregnant by Yiskor Elohim as Rachel. Something about that interaction jarred God to remember Rachel that now by Yiftaches Rachmah he opens her womb. He enables her to conceive Atar Ben and she gives birth to Yosef. What in the world is going on over here? Bizarre story. And the bizarre story begins with the question of what are Dudaim. What was little Ruvain bringing from the field? Why did Rachel want a piece of it? Why did Leah not want to share it? Why was it worth Rachel making the trade for it? Why did Rachel take, so to say, this abuse from her sister instead of responding the way we all would have? And what about the interaction merits Rachel finally conceiving and having that child she was so desperate to get? Just a few questions that we have here on this section. So what were these Dudaim? What were these Dudaim? Were they significant? No. How do we know they weren't significant? Larashi. Ruben is going out, he goes to collect these Dudaim in the time of the wheat harvest. Says Rashi, why is he going out in the time of the wheat harvest? Because he's Yaakov's son. And everything we just said about Yaakov, the Rambam calls him a tzaddik Yaakov. Why was he a tzaddik? Because he was Mr. Honest. Says Rashi, It's the time of the harvest of wheat. And little Reuben could have gone into someone else's field and collected a bunch of something of value, like barley or grain. But he doesn't. Why? Because he's honest, like his father Yaakov. So what does he get instead? Dover hefker. He takes some weeds. He takes something which is hefker. It's insignificant. Something of little value, where it won't be stealing or dishonest because no one cares. Since nobody cares about it, he can take it. So the first thing we know about these Dudaim are, they are not some incredibly valuable flower arrangement. It's not a dozen roses for his mother to lift her spirits. But rather it's hefker. It's ownerless. It's ena de makbidbo. It's something no one cares about. What is it? Says Rashi. Shigli, Asifu, it's some type of a, of a grass. Some type of a grass. We have all kinds of suggestions. Jasmine, violets, mandrakes, figs. All of our Mepharshim and Rishonim struggle to identify what are Dudaim. Whatever they are, they're not some rare, super expensive, valuable flower. Why? Why though did Ruvain do this for his mother? Says the Ibn Ezra, Says the Ibn Ezra, Amar Matargim Yevrochun v'chein Yikru Balashin Yishma v'yishlam Reach Tov. These flowers had a pleasant aroma. V'chein Kasev Adudim Nasnu Reach Hematsuras Ben Adam. These are flowers that look like a person. Yishlam Dmos Rosh v'yadayim. They have like a head. They have branches that stick out like arms. 
says the Ibn Ezra Anochi lo yadati lama yo'ilu leherayon I'm not really sure why these dudaim would have a fertility benefit ba'avur she'tol dasam kara they're, they're cold in nature these flowers so since they're cold in nature I don't understand their medicinal value says the Ibn Ezra I'm not really sure why they were helpful for herayon for pregnancy so that's a little hint according to the Ibn Ezra what is bothering little Ruvain and what is he trying to help? According to the Ibn Ezra, Ruvain notices that his mother is very sad that she's been having lots of children and now a period of time has passed that she's not pregnant. She's very sad. Little Ruvain picks up on that and he goes and he collects what for the farmer is insignificant and has no value but has some fertility benefit and he brings it for his mother. And now Rachel says, Can I, ha- oh, I also want a kid. You know that. Can I have some of that? And Leah responds, not enough, you took my husband? But Rachel is so desperate for the Dudaim that she says, take my husband tonight. Which begs a different question, which is, what do you need in order to get pregnant? Let's not get graphic. But you need your husband. Right? Okay, today the lab and technology and IVF, but you need some ingredients. Let's just say that one. You need certain ingredients. So what bothered Rachel, and she says, can I get some of these dudaim is, I want to have children, then it's certainly not going to help her cause to give up her husband for a night. So how does that make sense? That just compounds the confusion about what's going on over here. Says the Svarno, says the Svarno, you know why Rachel wanted these dudaim? Because she's tried the davening. She's gone the davening route. And has that yielded her a child? No. And she realizes, this comes also back to our Amun, the on Wednesday mornings. She realizes, you know, maybe I'm so busy davening, I'm not doing enough ishtadlis. Maybe I need to do some initiative and effort. Right? I've interacted with childless couples who, whatever way it was brought up that they're struggling to conceive. And you say, you know, have, have you gone to the, to the fertility doctor? No, I'm davening, and I'm doing this school, and I'm doing the other school, and I'm baking 40 challahs, and I'm... But did you go to the doctor? No, 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 I'm davening. Kirsh Baruch, we live in a world where you got to do your tefillah, and you got to couple it with ishtadlis. And we've talked about in the Amunashir, what's the right ratio of prayer and faith to initiative and effort. So look at the Svarno. That's what the Svarna says is going on over here. Says the Svarna when he sees his mother Leah has stopped having children. He says it's good for conceiving. Like the rabbis say about garlic. We'll leave that aside for a moment. So, says the Svarno, Ruben sees his mother said she's not pregnant. He gets the Dudaim to share so his mother will have a child. Leah wants it. Look at the Svarno. Now skip. On Pasuk Tezayin. On Pasuk Tezayin, says the Svarno, V'lo ta'asa ol bezelavatel onas achosi, so 
Both Leah and Rachel's desperation to have children is not for, to, for their ego, for their self, for their honor. It was to serve Hashem. The whole story of the Dudaim says the Sforno is the story of taking initiative. Certainly it's the davening to Hashem, but it's coupled with Leah wanting to take this fertility drug and Rachel saying, I'll give anything to get a piece of this fertility drug, even giving up my husband for the night. Says the Sforno that Tzaddik doesn't avoid initiative and only have faith. The Tzaddik realizes that initiative is faith in action. That you need to have both. And continues the Sforno. Yaakov that is with Leah that night. He recognizes Leah has good intention in wanting to have another child. Why does God reward Leah with now reopening her womb? Because he sees that she's combined her prayer, her faith, with initiative. He says the Svarno, this whole story is the story of not just sitting back passively with faith, waiting, but taking initiative, doing what's necessary. A lot more to say, but we're out of time, so I want to tell you Rabbi David Foreman's incredible shot about what's really going on here. Because it's so complicated, it's hard to understand what do these do to him, why do we really care? Here's what Rabbi Foreman says, and I think once he says it, like so much else that he says, you look at it and it makes so much sense. You know, by the way, skip forward to Yechezkel and Navi. When the Jewish people are sent into Gullus, we know that it's in the merit of our mama Rachel. By the way, Chazal are very critical of Rachel for giving up that night. They say that's why Rachel is not buried in Maraz and Machpelah. She was willing to give up that night with Yaakov. They said, fine, in eternity you won't lie with Yaakov. He'll be with Leah. Very critical of her, her no matter, even if it was in the effort to want to have children, separating from a spouse is something which is so, they were very critical of. What's really going on over here? So, Kol Baramanishma, you all know the song, Rachel Mevaka Abaneha, Rachel is crying. And what does Hashem say? When we're walking, we're led towards the exile. When we're being kicked out of the land of Israel, and we're being brought into Galus, Babylonia, and we pass Kever Rachel, and Rachel mevaka abaneha. She's crying. And what does Hashem say? Don't worry. Your children are going to come back. What does He say? Ki yesh sachar There is a reward for your pu'ulaseich for your work, for your goodness, for your, mag- for your kindness, for your benevolence. Rabbi Foreman picked up, um, it's not a coincidence, that when Leah's with Yaakov that very night, that Shavuos night of the Dudaim, and she has a child, what's his name? Yisachar. Yesh Sachar. Not a coincidence. Rachel, you're going to have reward, Yesh Sachar. You're going to have your Yisachar. Yesh Sachar. What's her pu'ula seich? In what merit? What did she do that was worthy of it? So listen to how he interprets this story. This is really the first time we see Rachel and Leah talking. This is the first combination conversation between the two. And you can view it as a hostile conversation, but Rabbi Foreman interprets it as the most incredible conversation. Until now, there's a very hostile adversarial relationship. Rachel was in love with Yaakov. 
But you know what? Lavan snatched Yaakov from her and gave him to her sister Leah. And at that moment she had a choice. She wasn't going to get Yaakov either way. She could humiliate her sister and hold back the signs. Or she can show what we know was that incredible generosity by giving the signs. And really was the merit of that generosity. We talk about this in one of the keynotes on Tisha B'Av. It's in that merit that we're back in Israel today. Our Mama Rachel. But Rachel is bitter. She's angry. She's resentful that she has to share her Yaakov with, Ra- with Leah. That wasn't the plan. Meanwhile, what's Leah's perspective? What's Leah's perspective? You'll notice, this is how he interprets it. He says, Reuben is bringing back this bouquet of flowers. And why is he bringing back the bouquet of flowers? He's six years old. Until now, says Rabbi Foreman, a child is a taker, a taker, a taker, all they do is receive. And the parent gets nothing in return other than, of course, the fulfillment and satisfaction of parenting that child, the bond and the love it creates. But now at six, for the very first time, Ruvain is doing a gesture back to Leah. He brings his mother a bouquet of flowers and says, Mommy, I love you. You're crying. Your eyes are so, so sad by your crying. They're so soft, so sad. All you do is cry, Mommy. I'm so bothered by your crying. Here's a bouquet of flowers. I love you. And what does Rachel say to Leah? What does he say? My dear sister, can I... Why does she identify the Dudaim as being of her son, B'neich? Says Rabbi Forma, what Rachel is saying is, I know that I'm his aunt, I'm not his mother, but I'm so desperate to love, to connect. Can I have some of those flowers? Can I put a couple of those flowers in a separate vase on my night table? Can I think of my love for my nephew? Can I feel a little bit of a motherly connection? And what's Leah's reaction? That's a very legitimate request of Rachel. Because Rachel's attitude is, you know, I was supposed to be with Yaakov. You not only stole my husband, you stole my destiny because I'm barren and you have children. So Leah, the least you can do, a woman who stole it all from me, the least you can do is give me a little bit of the flowers to put on my night table so I can feel a little bit of an expression of motherly love. And what's Leah's response? Is it not enough that you took my husband? What does it mean, is it not enough you took my husband? Not enough you took my husband? Says Rabbi Foreman, look at it through Leah's eyes. True. True, it's Lavan who orchestrates that Leah be with Yaakov. But Leah says to Rachel, look, I didn't do this to you. I didn't go steal your husband. Our father, wicked father, put me in that situation. But you know what? Once he did, you should have moved on and found another husband. Once Lavan replaced me that night, and once Lavan put me under the chuppah, and once our father made me the one married to Yaakov, if you loved me, one more minute, Rabbi Moskos, I'm sorry, if you loved me, you would have let me be with my husband and found someone else. But you insisted, you inserted yourself, you waited. And then you married him. And you know, you don't think I know that he loves you more? You don't think I know that there's more magic romance between the two of you? You don't think I know I'm second fiddle? So it's not enough that once I married him, you took him from me. Now you want to take my children and try to be their mother? You asked me to share my husband as a co-wife, now you want to be a co-mother to my children? The du da'ich b'ni? And you know what Rachel's response is? 
Now you understand it, says Rabbi Foreman. Rachel's response is, you know what? For the first time in my life, I see it from your perspective. I understand that you are in incredible pain, that you yearn for what I have with Yaakov. So you know what? Let him go home with you tonight. Let him go home with you tonight. Let me have a little of the Dudaim, and let you have a little of more of Yaakov, because each of us is desperate for something. And what they're desperate for is the opposite. My sister-in-law once gave a shir here where she explained this. All Leah wants to be characterized by is having children. That's all she wants. She knows there's going to be 12 shvatim. She wants most of them. I'm sorry. She knows she's going to have children. She's going to be the mother of most of them. What does she want more than anything that she doesn't have? She wants to be Yaakov's beloved wife. Rachel, as Yaakov, all she wants is children. Each wants a very distant, different destiny and legacy. Love and part of Lavan's cruelty is that he marries both of them to Yaakov, pinning them against one another. And what happens in these psukim is that they become sisters once again. They reconcile. They see things through the other one's eyes. They realize there's a second legitimate way to look at things. And that even though they felt they were the victim, they were the aggrieved, when they were willing to step out and look at it objectively, they realized that the other party could feel the victim and the aggrieved. And they were willing to share. And my sister-in-law concluded her shield on this topic by saying that what happened in perpetuity? Leah, who took for granted she was a mother but desperately wanted to be the wife, where is she buried forever? We go to Kevin, we go to Maras and Machpelah, and we visit Yaakov and Leah. And Rachel, who took for granted she was beloved, but desperately wanted to be the mother, what is she known as? Mama Rachel. She is forever the mother, the matriarch of the Jewish people. Each got what they wanted in the end. And in what merit did they get it? These psukim. Their willingness to see it from the other side, to share and to reconcile. In these psukim, they respond to Lavan and what Lavan had been trying to create. That's how wicked, how, how incredibly disturbed and nefarious he was. But a willingness to see the other's perspective enabled them to make room for the other. And that's what's really going on. And when you reread this entire section with Rabbi Foreman's Pshat, it becomes so obvious. That's exactly what's going on. And both then get what they want. Leah gets pregnant. Rachel gets pregnant. Rachel shares Yaakov with Leah. And so on. Moments that matter, 20th century moments that matter, 7.30 tonight. Have a wonderful day. See you next week.